Welcome to the Talking Story Podcast, where we believe all of us can have a more purposeful and meaningful, and yes, an even more exciting life. Listen in to inspiring stories about ordinary people who have done extraordinary things with their lives, through their hobbies, their passions, and their businesses. Join your hosts, father and daughter team, Bob and Kelsey, as they travel the world seeking out those whose stories inspire us to do things greater than what we imagined we could. Hey, and welcome to the Talking Story Podcast. It's actually not us, my dad and I today. It's Emily and Colin. We are so stoked that they will be your hosts. So be sure before we get started to click the subscribe button wherever you're listening from. We are on seven platforms now. Uh, Subscribing is free and it means the world to us. See you after the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Talking Story Podcast. We are your guest hosts today, Colin and Emily Betzler. We run Bought Beautifully, a marketplace that transforms lives. And we're so thrilled to bring our first guest to you all. Her name is Rebecca Gardner, and she is the founder of Hands Producing Hope. Hands Producing Hope is an organization that works with disadvantaged women around the globe to provide job opportunities and education. They're currently working in Costa Rica and Rwanda. Um, and this partnership is particularly special to us at Bot Beautifully because one, they were one of our very first partners, and two, because we actually got to spend a month with um, Rebecca's team down in Costa Rica, seeing firsthand um, the stories behind these products and meeting the beautiful makers um, who make the products. Yeah, so hopefully you'll enjoy listening to uh, what Rebecca has to say, what she has to share, and that you'll be encouraged Um in making a difference in the world, even if it's just one person and one idea at a time. So uh, Hands Producing Hope, like you mentioned, started in about 2012, but the concept behind it, you mentioned on your website, started in 2010 when you took a trip to Costa Rica. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that first trip, why you took it, where you went, um, why you thought you were going on the trip and maybe was it an instant enlightenment or was it something that sort of grew slowly after that time in Costa Rica? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So I uh, moved to Costa Rica for six months during my senior year of high school. Um, I found a crazy way for me to be able to still graduate and not be there. (laughs) So I did it and I went um, and interned with a missions organization in Uvita, Costa Rica. And now I had no idea that starting HPH would come from that. I wasn't doing anything remotely similar to what we're doing. I was helping open a internet cafe and doing a lot of construction and babysitting missionary families, kids, and um, digging trenches, painting. And so I'd say what came from my time there was relationships, though. Um, I became close friends with one of the missionary families. And after I left, they started investing all of their time. Um, oh, you know, Bart and Heather, they started working full time with um, this indigenous people group, the Guaymi. And so just 
out of relationship with them, I was hearing their firsthand experiences in this community, the needs of the community, what the challenges that they faced. And, um, and I continued to go back to Costa Rica at least once a year um, during college and had the opportunity to get connected with some of, got to meet some of the people on this, in this tribe and just felt this call, if that's not too like cheesy of a word to use, to create something to, in particular to help the women in the community. Um, I was studying international studies in college and was really passionate about finding a way to do sustainable development. I cared a lot about marginalized people groups and um, seeing that all people have the opportunity to thrive. But I also knew that there were so many people not doing it well <laughs> that like had really good intentions. And I wanted to find a way to have a role in, in that world of like humanitarian work, sustainable development, all these things. I'd done a you know a bunch of mission trips growing up and um, I wanted to play a role in that, but I wanted to do it in a way that was actually helping create generational change. Um, but I had no idea what that would actually look like. And then in all kind of the ideas all started formulating um, after meeting a few families that were from um, this tribe and buying some random pieces of jewelry that they had brought with them. And I wore them all the time in college. Mm -hmm. And just every time someone made a comment about them or any time like I, I could just kept reoccurring that like, coming back in my mind and thinking like, gosh, I think there's something here. I think there's something I'm supposed to do with these ladies. But I, I even knew before HPH really started that it wasn't just going to be those women, that that was just going to be a starting point and that the challenges that the women that we work with, that we work with in Costa Rica weren't isolated and like only happening there and not happening anywhere else in the world. So, I mean, we're, we're somewhat familiar with Costa Rica after being there a little while, um, but yeah. like Ubuntu is sort of a beach town, right? It's on the west, sort of the southwest uh, part of the coast. And then where um, Hands Producing Hope works with the Guayme people in San Vito is more like South Central Highlands. Mm -hmm. When you were in Ubuntu, did you, like, were you, did you know about the Guayme or, or when did you become familiar with them? And why don't you share a little bit more about them as an indigenous people group so that uh, people who maybe have never heard of them before can have a little bit better context of of who they are and what the challenges are surrounding their um, yeah their people. Yeah, um, I heard little bits and pieces when I was staying there, but I I didn't ever make a trip myself at that time. Bart and Heather and the missions organization they were doing like occasional trips to the reservation, um, so I, I had heard the name and I had heard that they, you know, lived up in the mountains and like heard little bits, but I didn't know a whole lot until, until later. Um, and what I began to learn was that indigenous, indigenous people groups in Costa Rica, not just the Guaymi, but the many others that are there are often very discriminated against um, within the country. And that can take a lot of forms like discrimination in the rest of the world too, where, um, people are just looked down on, like they dress differently and they look differently. They're, you know, a different ethnic group and they, that can play into the jobs that they're able to get. Often 
for instance, a lot of our friends that we work with um, also do farming and they're, they go and pick coffee cherries in coffee season and the Guayami people are often paid half the price per bag for the coffee cherries that they sell than other Costa Ricans just purely because of their ethnicity. Um, and yeah, they're treated poorly and just not, it's a really, it's a really big challenge. Um, and then that kind of compounds for women in the community because they carry all most, if not all of the weight of caring for their families and education. If it was achievable for anyone in their family, normally the funds were prioritized to be able to receive that. And so a lot of the women that I was learning about and now I'm connected with, um, either never had the opportunity to go to school or stopped in the middle of elementary school or stopped by middle school. And then, you know, you get to adulthood and you just have all these barriers coming up against you to be able to provide for your family. Uh, you, you know, don't have the education level. You're seen as lesser than by the rest of the people in your country. You're isolated on a mountain. <laughs> your native language is different. Um, all these different things. Um, as I as I heard about all these different barriers facing the women in that community, I just felt really burdened, and I, I felt honestly, I think I felt this like holy anger of like that that's not fair, <laughs> and that is not their fault. Like to be born into a situation where immediately all these all these barriers are put up and making it that much harder, these hurdles to make it that much harder for you to pursue your dreams and I thought like man if if those if those hurdles were taken down like what what would that look like um and these women are so capable but sometimes you just need someone to give a little bit of assistance and to say like hey what like what do you need how can I help what what do you want to do like what are how can I help you pursue like the life that you want to have and maybe help you help you take down some of these barriers Right. Absolutely. I want to really quick, um, if we could just, and you get did a bit of it, but um, for a lot of us, the only context we have of Costa Rica is like Pura Vida, vacation, central, kind of maybe even a pillar of like ecotourism. And so it was really insightful for me to get a little bit of a history lesson, which I'm not going to be the expert here. So you guys can both Colin and, and Rebecca speak to this, but I was really surprised to learn that there were similar practices to what happened here in the United States. And this indigenous group you're talking about was sort of resettled and relocated to the area they live in now um right and that that wasn't necessarily their home or um where they originally were and it is a very sort of similar kind of um had been processed to what happened sort of here with native americans yeah yeah and so and people groups were yeah split up and so they you know were on that land long before spain and other in the area that we work in, there are a lot of people from Italy um, originally, and long before they came and um, settled there and or took over. Um, and yeah, the people groups there, like the Guayni, a large percentage are now in what is Panama, and about like 10 or 15% are in Costa Rica, but that's split up between multiple different plots of land. And so, um, and same for the other the other indigenous people groups in the country. Um, yeah, it's just, I, I don't want to say just like, because I'm sure that there might be some differences, uh, but very, very similar to what has happened in the U.S., which 
is it's really hard because then they're to me how do you maintain your they want to preserve their culture and their history and but then they're split up on all this land and then land keeps getting taken away which is a big bummer so yeah no it's very very unfortunate yeah i think some of the reading that we were doing i think historically way back when they were actually um you know tribes that lived all around uh the now present-day countries costa rica panama like you know on the oceans things like that and then as settlement happened they got pushed further and further and wanted to have you know uh, the least amount they could do with uh, settlers that were there. And so they ended up in these higher elevation, harder to reach, mountainous valleys and hills that were sort of the the least desirable um, for production, for farming and things like that. And then sounds like, you know, nowadays they continue to have pressure from development. And, you know, the Costa Rican government seems to be not excellent about keeping their word. and it, it it really seems like a really difficult circumstance that is always um, fluid. Yeah. Yeah. And even like with schools, there are a lot of areas that there is a school, but it, it can be very, very far because the government will provide a teacher if you provide an adequate building. So it's up. The community would then have to pay for and construct a school just for their local community to have an elementary school, which is like, that's mm-hmm. just so absurd. So on the surface, it may like look like, oh yeah, they, they'll pro- you know, the government of course will provide schooling, but then mm-hmm. you see like what steps have to happen in order for the school to come into existence. And that is a big hurdle. Like that's, that's a big yeah. cost. Yeah. And same thing like face value of, oh, it's wonderful that the government has given them these, you know, areas of land to, to farm and exist on. But I remember uh, chatting with one of your, one of your hands producing hope, uh, you know, people there, one of your artisans, and they said that their farming plot was like a six hour hike from, you know, what we would still consider sort of the middle of nowhere. So six hours. And I think he said like his brother-in-law or his uncle typically stayed there to do the crops. But I mean, can't imagine trying to get things to market when you're six hours from a, you know, hour drive on a dirt road and the logistics just quickly, quickly show you why it's an economic struggle for mm-hmm. people in Costa Rica. Yeah. And real quick for, to visualize this for everyone. So we got to go um, where, where Rebecca and um, this group works. And so there's a really beautiful community up in the mountains called San Vito. And it's, you know, kind of a very well to do community, I would say on a lot of standards, it's lovely. And but to get to where the Guaymi people live, it is now you'll help to help me remember, but it's like a 45 minute taxi ride, right? Or 20, maybe a 20 minute mm-hmm. taxi ride, and then you get there. And then it's a 45 minute hike into their village. And, um, you know, so that is re- they are really isolated, and removed. And then like Colin said, then they're also farming and um, working spread out in that area too. Um, and so yeah, just a little bit of if you guys want to visualize how far and how hard it is to get crops to even get bracelets. I remember we had to be so strategic on, okay, this is when we'll go there because it costs this much to take the taxi to get to this to the place. And um, so there's just so many little pieces of the puzzle that I think often we don't even think about when we talk about like living in a rural vill- village or um, access and how how hard it is, like, especially when you're living in sort of a poverty situation to, to take a taxi into town to sell your products 
isn't necessarily in the budget. It's not necessarily an option. Right. Exactly. Rebecca, can you share with us like one of the one of the best experiences you had early on that sort of recharged you for what you were envisioning with Hands Producing Hope? Like, you know, maybe a t- an instance of when things were clicking with the artisans or when you felt like you finally had a little bit of a rhythm to uh, to the vision that you had. Oh. Or are you still searching for that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, gosh, I do. I feel like it ebbs and flows a lot. Um, like, we'll get into a groove of, you know, fi- finding, yeah, finding a rhythm, finding a way that things are working in terms of our relationship with artisans, how we're getting work done, what we're making, who's helping us get things done on the local level. And then we'll have to pivot. And I think um, this kind of this half answers your question. Um, I'd say one thing that I've seen over the years that helped me in terms of finding finding a rhythm and feeling really good about our work there. It's teaching myself and reminding myself that adapting and changing course can be good and can be like the best thing for your organization. And that um, it's the exact way that we started it when I was three weeks out of college seven years ago isn't like exactly how it has to look forever. But I would say uh, when you first ask that question, that one thing that comes to mind is my friend Matilde, who you guys probably remember. Um, she is just a really awesome, hard work, hardworking woman, um, single mom. And her and her sister, both um, Jorleni, both work with us. And I remember one time I was visiting with Matilde at her house and she was showing me the horses that she had bought and telling me how she was using them to, you know, people would pay her for her to be able to um, help transport their goods uh, for the other people that, or the, and they would just use her horse for other, other work. And she was able to make money that way. And she, you know, rides the horses um, to get to and from places a lot faster and those are just some of the things that income from her other job and, and income from Hands Free and Hope were able to help her do. And um, and then her sister, Jorleni, was able to open up a little, a pulperia, like a little shop to sell like minor, like essential goods, like you know, Tylenol and sugar and flour and different things because um, there aren't any real stores um, in their village. And that like that wouldn't have been possible without the, or it would have taken a lot longer without like some of the income that they were receiving from Hands Producing Hope. And for me, seeing those, those tangible things in their lives that like have longevity to them, like those horses will last a long time and seeing the quality of life that is increasing because of that. And I don't know, it just made me feel really, really proud of those women. Um, and really excited that we get to just be a part of their lives and help in some way. Um, because really, like, I, I, I don't want, I can't, I'm not going to take the credit for them creating those businesses and then buying those, buying those things. Like, that take a lot of initiative and work on their part. And they're the ones that are going to have to sustain it and all that. But to know that our encouragement and relationship and some of the funds, like, that we're able to 
help them along that way, like on along that path, and that that's going to help them have more income to support their kids and help their kids stay in school and hopefully graduate high school, even though they couldn't like all, all those things. Like it just makes me feel really hopeful for, um, for the work that we're doing there and seeing that it, it is bringing lasting change. Yeah. Absolutely. We actually got to see the store and I remember being blown away and then telling us, yes, this is, this is what we built and, and certainly giving credit to, you know, part of credit to, because we were able to sell this, we had extra money and we had a vision. We knew our community needed this. And, um, I, I would agree just having got to see it, how exciting. And it was, I remember just being blown away in terms of no way they did this, you know, that this, yeah. it's just like, like you said, it was just so hopeful in this reminder of, oh my goodness, given opportunity, given the chance, um, yeah. you know, what people will can do is just, just so inspiring. Mm-hmm. So Hands Producing Hope, uh, also has a program in Rwanda. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, how that started and how it's different than what you're doing in Costa Rica, or maybe it's the same? Um, share with us a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, so in Rwanda, we work um, on a few remote islands on Lake Kivu. We started that program. Oh, I, guys, I get my years all confused. Time, especially this year, is all a blur, so I don't <laughs> <laughs> I'd say I'd say I can date it by holding my children. Five years ago, we started the artisan training program. We weren't quite producing goods that we could sell yet, but we like started hiring someone to help train some women, and it all started. We started fundraising and all that. So, um, real quick, by Rwanda, or that might be <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. No, you're good. Um, uh, also, uh, from relationships. So the year, the summer that we were really getting things started in Costa Rica, we were having our first, um, workshop, I guess you'd say with our initial group of ladies, um, in Costa Rica that same summer, I also took a trip to Rwanda. Um, and I took the trip, um, kind of as like a vision a vision trip in a way. I there were multiple different organizations that I was going to get to go and learn from and see how they did things. Um, I felt a pull to like that region of the world, uh, but I didn't know where and I didn't know what it would look like. And so I thought, well, I think I just need to go and see and learn. And I figured, if anything, maybe there were things that I could learn from how they were doing things that I could apply to starting the HPH in Costa Rica. Like it'll be oh, good either way. Um, at, at that time, we, since we were just at the very, very beginning stages in Costa Rica, I like, I don't know, maybe we'll become a coffee company because coffee grows in that region. And so one of the organizations that um, I visited was land of a thousand health coffee. And they are a fair, like a nonprofit that um, invests in small farmers and in, Rwanda and it's like okay I can learn how they do that and then we can apply those techniques on the reservation and we'll start a coffee company cool <laughs> um, so obviously that did not happen but um, but when I was there um, one of the places that we went was one of the islands that we work on in Cumbo Island and our group was playing um, a part in helping um, fundraise for this feeding program that exists on the island um, and they needed to be able to add more kids in and needed 
they wanted to start like a sponsorship type program um, to be able to feed more children. And I was really taken back by, it, it was the most extreme poverty I'd ever witnessed. And it was like actually really hard for me to, to function. It was kind of embarrassing. Like I, but I just had never come face to face with like that, that level of, of poverty where like parents were having to choose which, which child to place in the feeding program. And they like might have six kids. They had to pick one kid, because only one kid per, per family could be in the feeding program. And this whole time I was, because of what I studied in college and because of what I was wanting to start in Costa Rica, I just kept thinking like, this is not what these parents want. Like what, why I wanted to get to the root of it. Like why, why do these families have to have these random white people in America pay for their kid to get some nutritious food? Like no one, no one wants this. (laughs) Like this is absurd. Like, and I'm like, I'm thankful for the immediate need being met but this is not sustainable in the long run this is only solving an immediate problem and what is actually the root problem here and it, it's all com- like poverty is really complex but the the biggest thing is that the island has like 80 to 90 percent unemployment and mm-hmm. so there's no money to buy anything <laughs> or do anything no one has a job and they want to work there's just zero opportunity and um and the opportunity that is found it's often day labor where they're paid like 50 25 to 50 cents to work all day carrying heavy loads on their heads and so it after basically i was like observed that saw that had conversations with some of the um locals that were you know kind of showing us around um and i i'm kind of impulsive i guess you could say and so part of me was like okay, we need to work here now, like, ready, set, go. <laughs> but I knew, like, well, we have zero, ne- negative $5 million. So we cannot, like, we have no money. Um, and so that's actually not possible. And I'm, I'm really, really thankful that I, like, forced, had to have self, self-restraint and know that it wasn't the time to somehow start two programs at the same time on opposite parts of the mm-hmm. world. But I did, what I did was I stayed in relationship um, with, um, the archbishop of that diocese that we were I was connected with and then I knew some people that continued to go on trips to that area and so I like had emailed with the bishop a few times and then also like send my friends down with some questions like okay when you see bishop Nathan will you ask him like this this and this because I I wanted I had these ideas of what we could do there but I also wanted to know like is this what the community wants is will we have people supporting us is this is there I think there's a need for this like is there do they think there's a need for this you know all that so that's kind of how that all evolved and now um now Rwanda is by far our biggest um program project whatever you want to call it um we have two two women's cooperatives that we've helped start and a third that's in training right now on three different islands and they all they are basket weavers um and in terms of how it's different from Costa Rica it's it's more set up in a cooperative method which is very common in Rwanda where uh basically they own their own they're the owners of their own business and so we help them form uh, their own cooperative and they have president and vice president and treasurer and all this and 
we kind of are this, we help come alongside them and guide them and give them the business training and help them with like money to pay for it. We help them get a building and um, help them buy supplies at the beginning, all this stuff um, and pay for a basket weaving trainer. But the goal is that they're kind of a, in a long run that they'll be able to be this like self-sufficient cooperative. And in Costa Rica, it, we, it's not quite, it's not really as like official as that in terms of cooperative. It's more, we have, we do have a real group relationship, like where we'll get together as a group, but it's more one-on-one um, relationships with the individual women that we're like providing work for and stuff. Um, like they don't have their own like group co-op. So in, in addition to the women's cooperatives, we've started um, an adult literacy school. So that's now on three islands. And so our first year, it was just open to the women in our co-op. We were like, cool. Only we discovered the need for this because only two of the women that we were working with had the ability to write their names. Because um, we had, you know, had these cool little cards. We were like, oh, cool. Yeah. The people that buy their goods in the U.S., they can see the name of the woman who you know, made it. You know, other organizations do the same concept. and we were excited for how it would like connect them to their connect people back to who made their goods and have it feel more tangible. And then we had like passed out all these, all the tags and like, cool, find, you know, find your name on these tags. Like here's your stack. Cause we bought this many baskets from you, blah, blah, blah. And then they were all handing their tags to these same two ladies. And we were just kind of observing all this happening. And I was like, wait a second going yeah. on here and and so yeah we you know discovered that only two of the women out of how many probably almost 50 or around 50 women yeah had, had no ability to even write their name and so <laughs> impulsive me we we're like okay um well do you guys want to learn to read and write <laughs> like, uh yeah we do <laughs> and we're like okay cool uh we're gonna find a teacher for you and we're gonna start doing that like now <laughs> Since 2006, over 150 women have escaped exploitation to be a part of Starfish Project. Each one of them is now developing a life-changing career in everything from sourcing to photography. Some have even gone on to run their own businesses. They, Starfish Project, invest 100% of your purchases into their social mission, which is to restore hope to exploited women and girls. Ladies and gents, yes, I said gents because guys, they have a really cool leather bracelet. Or maybe you are a guy listening and maybe you have a lady in your life. I mean, you could totally stoke her on a beautiful piece of jewelry that has a powerful give back. Starfish Project is where literally 75% of my jewelry comes from. In fact, it is one of our favorite brands at Moi Moi Market. And don't take my word for it. Check it out for yourself. I love every single piece that we bring into Moi Moi Market. We are offering free shipping on order of $50 or more. To learn more about Starfish Project, you can listen to episode 13 on this podcast, which, if you don't know, is called The Talking Story Podcast. And don't forget to share it with a friend. And remember... By purchasing a beautiful piece of jewelry from Moi Moi Market or Starfish Project, you are truly changing someone's life. And we are so thankful that you walk this planet. Thanks for being you. And remember to go check out 
moimoimarket.com, spelled M-O-I-M-O-I market.com. That's right, moimoimarket.com, which is a one-stop shop for all your products of purpose. Um, and you know, so we amazingly, one of the women, Jane, who we were already working with, she was um, part of the women's cooperative. She became, she was the one of the ones who had been writing the names for everyone. And she was, had finished high school and um, actually wanted her, one of her dreams was to become a teacher. And she's just, she's amazing. She's such a gift. She actually just gave birth to um, twin, twin babies a few weeks ago. But so she became our first literacy school teacher and is doing such a great job. And yeah, now we have it in two other spots. And then we also have a maternal health education program um, that I am just so excited about that works in four locations and is available to any pregnant woman in the community to come monthly to uh, classes on different life-saving prenatal uh, maternal health matters. So anything from prenatal nutrition to warning signs of how to know if something's going wrong in your body and when to call the clinic and um, the importance of nursing and not feeding your newborn any other food and 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 the importance of prenatal visits because there was a very 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 low um, rate of women who were going to any prenatal visits and most were just showing up um, either to give birth or when it was too late and they'd already lost their babies and so that is something that we started offering um we're partnered with a midwife um in partnered with a midwife in the netherlands from the netherlands who lives in uganda um that's developed this curriculum and we work together to to implement it and it's just been really really awesome awesome to to have that so can we just pause really quick? Because as you're telling these stories, my eyes are are watering up, and we talk a lot um, about about beautifully. Like when you are shopping beautifully, when you're shopping hands producing hope, um, when you're shopping Moy Moy Market, like you are making more than a purchase, you guys. And these are the stories of of what that really means that that these women who haven't learned to write their names are now not only having an opportunity to make their baskets and and sell these use their incredible talents that they have and sell them but they're also being poured into in these areas of learning to read and write and prenatal care and um you know it's just this really beautiful really powerful way that we get to be involved here in in the states um that it's just sort of easy to forget or gloss over, but like these are, um, and since this is the talking, the talking story podcast, um, you know, I think it's just worth pausing for a minute to say like, these are the stories behind your products. Like this is what you're a part of when you, when you guys shop this way. So, um, man, Rebecca, thank you so much. Like what, yeah, you know, and I feel like we knew you really well and we've known what you're doing, but even just pausing right now to hear the word, hear these stories from your mouth again is so encouraging and inspiring. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And and honestly, like, it it truly, like y'all partnership and, and of course, like the customer side of all the people that are buying from you guys are buying directly from us. Like, that is really what you're right, like what makes it possible. Like, we couldn't be <laughs> providing jobs, making all these baskets to just have them like, you know, sit in a warehouse somewhere in the US. <laughs> um, like it's, it's only, we can only do it um, for the people that are buying into the idea that like, it's important, it's important to 
have ethically made goods, that it's important for the maker of your item to be treated well, that there's value in knowing that your good has a story behind it and that it um, it's actually, it's not only like a net zero impact where like, oh good, I know there's not slave labor in it, but like going beyond that and saying like, no, I want, I want to know that this item is tangibly helping someone. Um, right. Like that takes a lot of effort or it can, you know, it can take, a, it, it takes changing your habits. It takes um, having self-control and target or, you know, it takes all these things and like, but just, I hope people feel um, encouraged that like it is so worth it um, and that the benefit far, far, far outweighs like the sacrifice that it might feel to, um, to choose to shop for your trade. Yeah. yeah. And, and we do, we talk about uh, like bought beautifully. We talk about we're, we're fair trade plus, like it's not just fair trade because there's a lot of fair trade out there and that's wonderful. But what you're describing, you know, the relationships that you've set up with uh, your women cooperatives in Rwanda with, uh, you know, Guaymi outside of San Vito. Um, it's so much more than just buying a fair trade product. You're, you're investing in lives in the community through education, through, you know, taking care of people, how they should be taken care of. And the coolest part is that it's, we, we talk a lot about transforming lives. And I think a lot of people are like, okay, yeah, it's a tagline. Like what do transform lives really look like? Well, education is a game changer. I'm sure those moms mm-hmm. who are learning about nutrition, um, learning about how to take care of their children, like that is getting taught down the line. And that's a permanent transformative change um, that, came to be just because someone like you said, you know what, this is troubling me. And I think I can play a role in making, you know, a better future. So it's encouraging, you know, your story is super encouraging because you're one person and it all starts with one person. So thank you for reminding uh, us about that and, you know, giving people uh, out there who might be you know, like you were a decade ago, um, the drive and the interest to to pursue something like that because it's entirely worth it, not just mm-hmm. for yourself, but for the people that are on the receiving end of that. And and you know what, people that are in the receiving end, we've noticed that they really they they give us so much more than you know we think we're helping them as well. Yeah, yeah, totally. No, I definitely like have experience firsthand how it is it is so much more of a partnership and um that one to make clear that it's not this like white saviorism thing but also like right. the in, in truly it we're a, you know it's a team effort um and it's we're learning from each other and i'm learning from them so much and it's just i feel like one of the luckiest people in the world that like i get to be in relationship with so many amazing women from all over the world that like, how, how do I get to be how, I ever, I wish everyone could do this too. Like, but I know that's not possible. Um, but I just, yeah, I feel so honored that I get to get to learn these women's stories and get to see how they live their life. And it, it just, yeah, we definitely learned so much from each other. It's really, really, really awesome. So Rebecca, you got, uh, you, you sort of had the vision for hands, what has become hands producing hope when you were in college. And um, from what you shared earlier, you sort of re, re, I guess you shifted your, your last semester in high school so that you could do something different. 
obviously you made a lot of personal changes to align your life in a way to pursue um, loving people in a radically different way. What would you maybe say to today's high schoolers or, you know, maybe some young people in college or maybe some, you know, older people that are just sort of stuck in a rut? Like, what would you maybe challenge them with um, just based on what your experiences have been in taking a non-traditional road to do something that is really, you know, radically different in today's world? I would say that it's okay if your path um, and your life looks nothing like the people around you, like that's okay. And that can be good. So if someone has, you know, has an idea or has something that's like pulling on their heart and, but it just, it doesn't, it seems too out there, you know, seems too scary or whatever um, that I guess I would, I would want those like high schoolers and college students to, I think the biggest thing as I'm thinking through what I want to say, it all, it honestly comes back to not letting fear hold us back. Cause I yeah. think, I think that's what, where people get stuck as they give into, give into fear. And so I think people are full of amazing ideas that can transform the world, but I think they get stuck in people's brains and in notebooks and they don't actually go and do them. And so I, um, my biggest encouragement would be to like, just ignore the fear, even if you still fear it, feel it, like ignore it um, and do something like start somewhere and ask for a lot of help and do a lot, you know, don't try to do things alone, ask for guidance and ask, like do a lot of Googling, but (laughs) do something like start, even if it feels really, really big, you it's okay to start really, really small and to not let the bigness or scariness of the dream hold you back from starting that dream. Um, right. I think that's like the most dangerous thing that we could do is to not do anything. Yeah. To mm-hmm. not do anything. And so many Wait. of us are doing it. Yeah, actually that's a good segue. So what keeps you encouraged? How do you stay encouraged and, you know, continuing to take on the, you know, the issues that come up when you're running an organization like Hands Producing Hope? Um, I'd say two main things uh, keep me encouraged consistently. Um, The first one is hearing, having conversations with customers and donors and volunteers who are, when I see it, like click in them that like the impact that they can make through their time and resources um, that like, they feel like, oh, oh, I like, this isn't just Becca's thing. Like I, I can, I can make an impact in my life and whether it's, you know, through HPH or through their own thing they're wanting to start or whatever. Um, seeing, and like now we just opened a, a storefront. And so I get to interact with a lot more new people, which has been really cool. And like seeing someone learn about this whole new way of buying for the first time. Um, it's very, it's very energizing for me because I see that I see something shift in them. of like, Oh, I didn't even, I didn't even know. Or like yeah. I had, Oh my gosh, I had no idea. <laughs> and, and you know, now they know, and yeah. I can't control what they do with that information. Maybe they'll just come back and shop with us once a year, or maybe they will 
you know, pursue to shop completely ethically and, you know, buy more used things and, you know, whatever. Um, but getting to be one of the people that helps bring that education is really exciting for me. And then, and then of course, um, getting, being in relationship with the artisans, I, I get to, you know, travel to Costa Rica and Rwanda and, you know, hear from our staff there, you know, when I'm not there about how things are going and everything, but I get to manage our refugee program here in Baton Rouge. And so that's really helpful on the day-to-day level of encouragement. Like I can feel kind of far removed from our programs in other countries. And so sometimes the like challenges of the day-to-day can feel overwhelming and the benefits, I'm not like, they're not right in front of my eyes. So it can, right. it can be really draining. So having, having this outlet where locally we're working with um, local refugee women and I get to talk with them about their lives and I get to, they will just tell me how the income that they've made has helped them or just, you know, questions I'm able to help answer for them about when they're trying to navigate, you know, adapting to life in the U.S. Um, that is really, really sweet to get to to get to be a part of um, and definitely helps me get through all the mundane and challenging aspects of just essentially, you know, running a business. Like <laughs> it's yeah. not, it's not fun a lot of the time. And I just need to be okay with that. Cause it's, it's obviously well, worth it. And it's not just running a business. It's running a business that <clears throat> a lot of times doesn't make sense as a business, you know? Oh yeah. No, it's, it's yeah, much harder <laughs> to business because you're making decisions based on people and not on profit. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. There's so much that I'm like, well, yeah, it definitely doesn't make sense financially, but we're going to do it anyway. Hopefully people will come through <laughs> and support it. So Colin had one question I really love. Um, and if you could share a 30 second message that would go viral to people in churches around America on this Sunday, what would you share? Ooh, oh, 30 <laughs> seconds. All right. Let me reel it in. Um, I, I think I would, I want people um, in the church to pause and throw out like everything that they knew about missions <laughs> and to throw out the idea that there's only a there's the select people that move across the world and those are the people that serve the poor and that the rest of us you know that that's that's for them and that's not for me um and I want people to have a new definition of what it means to love our neighbor because to me living a life where everything I buy you know is fair trade and um making sure that anyone that you know anyone that's producing the goods is having a, a positive impact made on their life and that the time and that I spend on my job and all that is positively impacting someone around the world like that to me is that's that's loving my neighbor like I I feel like I'm not following the call of Jesus if I don't do those things I think that it it's to me the bare minimum for being a follower of Jesus is being someone who makes sure that those who are oppressed, those who are marginalized, those who are overlooked in society are cared for and that aren't, they're not just given the bare minimum, but that like all the barriers that are coming up against them are torn down. Cause I feel like that's what Jesus came to do. And so I think that's something that we're all called to do. And I think that that looks different for everyone 
Um, so I think that's true. Like, you know, every, we're not all called to have the same job. Like that would be silly, but I think that we are all called to play a part. Um, and we all, a very tangible way that we are, uh, we can all play a part to in connection to like what, you know, what we've been talking about is how you buy your goods. Like it's so simple. Like we can't close our eyes. We can't talk about ending slavery or ending sex trafficking or we can't, or, um, you know, loving the least of these and then pretend that there isn't slave labor in our goods. Like you just, can't, you just can't do it. <laughs> um, and so I, I think, I think if the church really owned that and the church took the, like, was as passionate about those issues as they are about so many other things. Um, I think that it would have like a worldwide impact. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a good message, Rebecca. I hope it goes viral. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> if uh, I'm sure people will want to follow up to learn more about Hands Producing Hope, um, if they're not in Baton Rouge, because you said you just opened a store there recently, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So local people, of course, can um, come by. The, our retail store is called The Hope Shop, and they can follow that at the Hope Shop BR. Um, but other people, all of our goods are for sale online at handsproducinghope.org. Um, we can also only exist by the combination of our sales and our donors. So we have a lot of people who are um, monthly donors of any level. And then we have volunteers. We've had a lot of, we have a lot of local volunteers, but we do have people that have volunteered from afar, um, you know, depending on what their skill set is and what they want to help with. There's a lot that can be done remotely. So whether someone, you know, subscribes to our email list or follows us on Instagram or, you know, buys from us one time or buys from us monthly, like any of that, all of that makes a difference um, in terms of spreading the word about what we're doing and helping us be able to continue to support the women that we've committed to working with. So those are kind of the main, main ways people can, can find us. Hi guys, uh, Kelsey here. In case you don't know me, I am the host of the Talking Story podcast normally and the founder of Moy Moy Market. And I just took a listen, just like you all did, and was so inspired by Emily and Colin's conversation with Rebecca. And I just am reminded about these organizations like Hands Producing Hope and how they are not only giving a fair job, a fair wage, a fair income, a livable wage to the people they work with. But what they do goes beyond that. And what's so cool is that we get to be participants in that when we purchase products. Um, You know, a huge reason why we exist, whether it's Bought Beautifully or Moy Moy Market, is that we really believe in the power of our dollar. That as we are I don't know, maybe I should just say, as I'm a complainer in this world about why things the way they are, and I'm not happy with the things the way they are, and I know there's an election coming up, and it's super easy to complain, but like, really, it's about our dollar, and that we vote with our dollar, and that we really make a difference in other people's lives with our dollar. 
um, I hate to say it, but I really believe it fully, is that we either empower or we enslave by how we purchase products. And there's not really a middle. Um, It's either empowerment or enslaving. And so we are just on here to share the stories behind the products in which we've chosen to source from. And again, I say we because Bought Beautifully is a marketplace that is impacting lives. Plus, I love their plus. Um, And the Moy Moy Market is the same thing, that we really have gathered a group of people, brands, businesses, nonprofits that are really making a difference in the lives of others. And there's... So we've we've been in COVID, right? Um, I know some of us have struggled here in the United States in COVID. Some of y'all are unemployed. Some of you have lost vision as to what the future is in your job. And I get that and I'm sensitive to that. And I'm right there with you. You can listen to past episodes about that. Um, but I tell you, I think our brands and these nonprofits and these businesses that are really making a difference in the lives of others, they need us more than ever. And so we just really encourage you to just mm, sit on, think about, ponder, process, but also implement and act on what you've just heard, whatever that looks like to you. And we would love to know your thoughts. And what's really cool is we've changed our podcast platform. And thanks to anchor.fm, it allows you, the listener, to provide us audible feedback. So if you go on to anchor.fm and you type in the Talking Story podcast, You'll see us. You can leave an audio message. And in fact, we're so excited because those messages and what you guys are wrestling with or want to know, maybe have questions, maybe have doubts, maybe you um, have been inspired in some way. We want to know about it. So if you would, um, leave us an audio message and then you can just touch base with us at the Talking Story Podcast. In our show notes, we'll have ways that you can touch base with Colin and Emily, um, myself and my dad, since we are also the host of the Talking Story podcast, or just uh, get on our social media and find us and share us and talk about us. So we really appreciate you, our audience. We consider you our tribe. And I think together, as we learn together how we can make a difference in the world, it's going to create this ripple impact. It's like this little pebble. We're throwing these little pebbles in and we're ho- our hope is that we're going to start to see these ripples ultimately making waves in the lives of others for generations to come. Have a wonderful day, you guys. We'll see you next week. Aloha. Thanks for joining us today on the Talking Story Podcast. We hope you feel encouraged and inspired. Be sure to visit our show notes for more information and find us on social media at the Talking Story Podcast. Your hosts, Bob and Kelsey, want to hear from you. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review. Oh, and big mahalo to our sponsor of today's podcast, Moy Moy Market, a one-stop shop to purchase products with purpose. We truly believe you have it in you to change the world too and to make an amazing difference in the lives of others.